Are you currently farming or dreaming about taking your homestead to the next level? Do you want all the latest information about growing and marketing vegetables, meat, grains, flowers, dairy, and more? Then register today for Together We Can, the 23rd Annual Sustainable Agriculture Conference from Future Harvest. On Thursday and Friday, January 13th and 14th, you can connect virtually from your smartphone, tablet, or computer for more than 20 sessions across a range of subjects, including business planning, regenerative agriculture, and soil health that are appropriate across a range of interests and experiences. Network with other farmers in your field through farmer-to-farmer -farmer breakout sessions and caucuses. Cook at home during interactive lunches with renowned chefs. And know that if you need it, scholarships to the conference are available. Don't miss this opportunity to learn from experts and seasoned growers alongside more than 700 farmers, enthusiasts, and activists. Find out more and register today by going to futureharvest.org. Would you like to deepen your ecological literacy, to learn how to read the landscape, or how to apply the concepts of ecology to your permaculture practices? Then join me from September 7th to the 11th, 2022, at Earth Haven Eco Village, near Asheville, North Carolina, for an in-person, hands-on workshop and retreat in ecological literacy and design. Together, we'll hone the skills you need to practice permaculture in your life every day. Whether this is your first class, or you've completed a permaculture design course and been practicing for years. If you register before February 1st, you'll not only save $150 off the regular price of this workshop retreat, but also only need to pay a deposit to hold your place. We'll contact you in early May for the balance. Find out more and sign up today at learnfromtravel.com slash permaculture. If you enjoy this episode or any in the archives, join the podcast community of patrons. For less than $1 a month, if you pledge annually, you'll receive early access and discounted tuition on upcoming courses and classes, a link to join the community discord, and regular updates of what's happening at the show. For just $5 a month, receive patron-exclusive episodes of the podcast and much more. Read about all the reward tiers and join today at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest for this episode is Renard Turner, an independent African-American sustainable farmer who, along with his wife, raises gourmet goats and squabs at Vanguard Ranch Natural Gourmet in Virginia. He is also the opening keynote speaker at the upcoming conference, Together We Can, from Future Harvest. I wanted to learn more about Renard and how those experiences inform his upcoming keynote speech, New Age Agrarianism, Growing for a Regenerative, Sustainable, and Equitable Planet. The results which follow are a frank conversation about agriculture and the impacts of systemic practices and policies on African Americans, indigenous, and people of color. This includes the issue of land access and the need for each of these communities to have equitable quantities of land if current and future generations will ever have a chance to learn vocational agriculture at a meaningful scale from members of their own community. We also touch on how, as these are systemic issues, we aren't individually at fault for the policies and practices that got us here but that as we become aware of them, we can take action in solidarity towards the liberation of all. Enjoy this conversation with Renard, and I'll join you again after. 
the social aspects of this historically are pretty terrible for Black folks. As a person who's been involved in agriculture and in an alternative agricultural follower, if you will, since the early 70s, you know, I'm like 40 years into this and, and, and beyond, there's still a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. And relative mm -hmm. to the perspective of an African-American sustainable organic regenerative farmer, there's very few of us out here who have experienced the things that I have experienced. It's still an uphill battle. This whole land access issue is central for everything. And it really shapes a lot of my thought process because, you know, as I go about doing this work, as people say these days, you know, the numbers are not encouraging at all, really, for African-American farmers' future. Our numbers are not increasing, as everyone says. It's just that new definitions have come in vogue. That data has skewed the reality of the numbers. I make the analogy all the time, Scott, and a lot of people don't like it, but, you know, it, it is what it is. If you play putt-putt golf, you can become very good at that, but that certainly will not qualify you to play in the Masters. And I make that analogy to illustrate the differences between, you know, rural-based vocational farming on, on, with an economy of scale where you're going to feed your family and have heritable income for generations to come as a lasting business model and, you know, pop-up nonprofit urban farming efforts that don't really address those issues at all. I'm not anti that. I'm just saying the economy of scale with which I and other Black people need to be looking at this is what does it take to be able to feed ourselves, provide enough foodstuffs and products and services to fill warehouses and stores that we own and control and the neighborhoods that we're relegated to living in as a result of systemic racism, Jim Crow laws, and applied racism that is very active today. We're not really getting to the core of that for Black folks, and a lot of people are massaging this social movement thinking that it's a wonderful move, but it's like offering a slice of the pie, but not the whole pie. Before I moved to Northern Virginia, I volunteered with a African-American arts and culture nonprofit that was looking at urban agriculture and teaching future mm -hmm. generations how to grow food in cities. From those numbers from Rafika, who I worked with, she said that in Pennsylvania, there were two Black farmers that she knew who would want to actually teach children how to do this, that out of all of her research and work and outreach, I couldn't believe how few farmers there were. And then encountering the urban planner, Jeff Speck, who wrote the book Walkable City and Walkable City Rules, he was the person who got me some of the literature that finally made sense of redlining and how systemic these kinds of forces were, how long that they've existed. As someone who's tried to be aware and informed of these kinds of things, recognizing how deep and broad my ignorance is in all of this yeah. and how much it's not taught, we're not aware of it, and how difficult that is to be engaging with these systems that are still so oppressive to so many. That is correct. And it's not just you, Scott. I mean, this, I've lived long enough to know that we go through different decades where buzzwords become prominent. We're in a decade now where systemic racism and social injustice are being bantered around quite regularly and quite frequently in intellectual circles whenever people get together to discuss these types of things. Be that as it may, the truth behind all of this is that the severity of the situation is not understood by most Americans, simply because they have had zero exposure to it or very little interest in seeking the knowledge of the history as it applies to people of color and land accessibility in this country, because I'm a firm believer that at the core of the 
problems that we continue to have, we meaning African-American people in this country, and in fact, the diaspora around the world and the planet Earth, but particularly in North America, is the lack of access to land. That changes everything, because whoever controls the land controls the wealth of the nation. It's very simple. We all know the history of this country on stolen land. Well, it doesn't look like anybody's really trying to, to talk about equity for the indigenous and native peoples by doing some federal mandates to give lands back and that type of thing. So that conversation is not really being had at any substantial level where it's going to actually happen. For African-Americans who are mostly relegated to living on the East and West Coast in major cities, it's even worse. You know, statistically, we now own less land than we did in 1935 as a people. There are five wealthy white people in North America who own more land than all of the African-Americans collectively own in this country. So when 98% of the land is owned and controlled by white people, and therefore food production is also controlled by white people, and those of us who are in this movement talking about food justice, inequality, and diversity, without talking about access to land, are really not understanding the historical roots of the problem. And we can't fix it. And while I applaud the efforts that people are making with all of these urban ag projects, but they're always usually aimed at the children. So here's the thing. It's the pie in the sky. You know, it's like you have to wait until you die to go to heaven to get a piece of the good stuff. So we have to wait. How many more generations do we have to wait for these children to grow up to be able to access land, hopefully purchase land, develop land, and turn it into viable agricultural businesses and industries that can feed this African-American population? Because that's what's missing. Other communities do this, and, and I'll say... Let's contrast our situation with like the Amish. A lot of people know of the Amish. Well, the Amish people can still feed themselves because the Amish people have maintained a land-based culture. When you remove people from a land-based culture, which is what's happened to African-Americans at large, particularly here in North America, and you put them in this concrete jungle, there's only small patches of space available left to grow food. What's missing in all of this, and I think it's criminal, is that these inner city youth are not getting exposure to vocational agriculture with any economy of scale for them to embrace becoming, say, for example, a dairy farmer or a cattle rancher or a turkey rancher. That's still outside of their realm of, well, they can't even fathom that because they never see it. So there are still generations and many, many generations of children who are inheriting land not saying they're not having a difficult time because agriculture is hard for everyone, regardless of whatever color their, your skin pigmentation shows. As tough as it is, it's even tougher. So my concern continues to be that these inner city youth are not going to have real exposure to vocational agriculture on any scale that will inspire them to really truly become a part of the agricultural network and be able to feed themselves because that is not being promoted beyond a community-based level because the understanding is, well, we're going to use what we have, grow where we are, no problem with that. But the bigger picture is not being addressed. So I'm the person who's asking the question, is this going to take us where we need to go in a generation, in a two-generation period of time? And the answer is no, unless we're able to grow food in substantial amounts that we can put in stores in these neighborhoods that we are concentrated and living in and control the whole process from the field to the warehouse, to the store, to the cafe, to the restaurant, everywhere just like other people do. And that issue with, vo with vocational farming is being able to farm as a profession at a scale that is more than just 
a quarter acre of a city lot growing exactly. vegetables, but being able to see and experience these different types of agriculture being practiced by African-Americans and being able to look at large pieces of land and go, okay, if I want to go raise cattle, I have mentors in my community that I can go learn from and have access then to land that is large enough to grow cattle, not be focused in these smaller, very kind of unique or niche markets, but to have the entire breadth of agriculture open and available. Exactly. So when you talk of inclusion and you talk about accessibility and you only present to Black folks what I call an ag light program, agricultural light version, just like a light beer or what have you, just to make an analogy, we're getting ag light because we're saying, given the circumstances that we know that you're living under, this is probably the best you can do and the most that you can do. So we're gonna help you along those lines. And then there's a whole industry of foundations and everything else that's built around this. But what it does is it promotes keeping people in that space where they are without really even exposing them to vocational agriculture at large on a scale that makes a huge difference. And that, that really allows you to develop a financial economy that you can also control. That's missing. That's still yep. systemic racism in full effect. As I work through this in the moment, and I apologize sure. for any ignorance I express. No, 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 no. That's, this is, Scott, let me tell you something, brother. I, I like having the opportunity to have these interfaces because, you know, I have been doing this for a long time. And, and I know of these people that you speak of. And I also know that the differences in our philosophies, because I set out to be a farmer so that I could be an in, in independent in the skin that I'm in. It's very difficult to navigate life through this country without having to go through some hard knocks. It just comes with the territory. That's part of American history. It hasn't gone away at all. I don't think it's possible to stay here for another four generations as a people and not be able to feed ourselves. I think that's a huge mistake. And therefore, any efforts that aren't really speaking to that on the scale that we, I feel we should be addressing it are falling short. So when I look at the projection, you know, I'm 69 years old now. 10 years from now, I'll be 79, God willing. But what will the status of African-American farmers be? Will it be any better then? Or are we going to continue to wait for the next generation of children to come up, get old enough to access land, purchase land, learn how to develop it, learn how to plan it, learn how to build infrastructure to support it and build businesses? You see, we're asking a hell of a lot to happen in a short period of time. It's a lot to digest, Scott, but this is the reality. The, the reality for me and, and other Black farmers, which is why I do a lot of conferences and attend a lot, and everybody talks about the programs that they have, but those programs are always generally urban in flavor, and very few of them even know of elder Black farmers who are doing it independently and differently. They, they don't even know we exist, so they're surprised, and they'll say, like, well, I, only, I can't think of any because it is an America psyche to have us subsidized and remain in a subsidized, subservient position to the white dominant culture. It is what it is. Therefore, you know, people can still make money doing these things, but will there be a significant change for the 12 year old African-American boy or girl who's coming up right now in inner city USA anywhere in terms of access to healthy food, access to vocational agriculture as a profession, access to land, so it's like how many black children own a pony versus how many white children own a pony and why? 
or how many black children compete at state fairs and show livestock, uh, how many white children and why, and how many black children are, are raising, you know, rabbits or exotic chickens or what have you. And the differences are remarkable. And it's not just black folks, I want to say, it's also the indigenous population of this country, which also gets summarily dismissed, left out of the conversations. So we still have a lot of work to do. And I know there's a lot of well-meaning people who, who feel sincerely that they're doing a wonderful job by teaching these children to grow squash or tomatoes. That's fine. But the lesson that they should really be speaking to them about, from my perspective, is the need to be able to feed yourself with an economy of scale that makes a difference in the communities with the ability for the communities to have enough food sources available. Why don't we own the stores? Why don't we own the warehouses? Why don't we own the trucks that do the distribution? Why don't we own a flour company and bake bread, and make pies, what have you? Why don't we do that? And his, his, we know the history. You know, it's a, it's a complicated mess. But, you know, at the same time, I speak to all small farmers and and those are really my um they're my constituents. We, we do the same type of work. You know, I, I say that we're all earth warriors trying to make a difference and, and change this life on this planet to a more greener, you know, egalitarian place for everyone. I, I'm sure sincerely hoping that's what people desire to do. At least, you know, that's what I desire to do. But we can't do that without really being inclusive. And we can't really be inclusive unless we begin to be honest, you know. So I, I think there's a lot of what I call paternalistic oversight, if you will, at the African-American community by well-intentioned non-Blacks who feel that they're doing the best they can to help the situation, short of encouraging Black people to attain a level of independence where they no longer need those social welfare systems, you see. It's great to help people, but if you're helping people and you're going to say, I'm going to reach down to help lift you up because I can do that, but we don't want you to ever really leave the space you're in. You see, because what they wouldn't know what to do with us or how to react to us outside of that given parameters, life within the paradigm of being an inner city black person. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot I know. It's like, wow. You mentioned the Amish. I grew up brethren, so I come mm. from the Anabaptist tradition. I refer to Christian anarchism and, you know, militant <laughs> pacifism. Yeah. And those are a large part of myself. And everyone was always welcome at my grandmother's table growing up, my maternal yeah. grandmother. And I always asked her why she was like that and why she raised so many of us like that. And she was like, we were too poor to care. She's like, it's me and my friends. And it didn't matter what our skin color was because we were just trying to put together enough pennies to go to the soda counter and buy a malt. Yeah. I grew up with the stories of crushing poverty out of Appalachia. And like, that's a part of, of my story and my family's tradition. But even then knowing the privileges and advantages that come from looking the way that my family did absolutely versus what we're discussing in our conversation today, many of these programs, as you speak to them, and I mean, I've experienced them myself. I've talked with people who do NGO development all over the world. And a lot of the criticism is the fact that it is not actually liberatory, that it may help elevate, but it is elevating people in a way that keeps them part of a system where they can continue to be exploited rather than truly making them free. That is my position, and that's why I'm an independent African-American sustainable farmer who does a hell of a lot by myself, because even these people at these institutions really don't want to hear my voice because they get uncomfortable with it. Like I said, they, they can only relate to me through a paradigm that keeps them comfortable in the space that they're in. It has nothing to do with the space that I live in in my reality. They know nothing of that, although they assume that they do. 
as well-intentioned as, as it is. And, and there are some that are really super. I met several people who are, you know, I mean, as far as being a human being, they're on top of their game, but they can't see the world through the eyes of someone whose skin they're not in and someone who's experienced it for as many decades as I have. They have no idea. But relative to agriculture, which is, you know, the root of all of this, you know, I'm very sincere in saying that we, African-Americans, lose 30,000 acres of land every year. 30,000 acres a year. This is a fact. Um, one book that I think everyone should read, it's called Systematic Land Theft, A History of U.S. Tactics, Keeping Tribal Nations from Reclaiming Their Land and Blacks Landless. This is an excellent book written by Jillian Hishaw. Everyone should read this book who's interested in agriculture, who's talking about equity, and who's, who doesn't really understand the history of American lands and land ownership and how it got to be this imbalanced picture that it is. But, you know, that's, it's really a separate battle, and I get that. But, you know, it, it truly is. It, it's a separate battle. But for me to embrace the fellowship of, of this whole agrarian movement, which I do, without being true to myself, it doesn't work. There's no way I can do that because my reality, even within the agrarian movement, is very different. When I do a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation, when you say that African-Americans in the United States are losing 30,000 acres of land a year, even at $10,000 an acre, that's $300 million. And, and that's, that's just, but that's not the generational loss of wealth. That's not the ability to build one's nuclear family up to where you're having a healthier family dynamics. Because, you know, the reality is, you know, those statistics aren't great, you know, for everyone across the board with, you know, 50% of marriages ending in divorce. But you got 60 to 70% of the African-American households are single parent households. There's issues that trickle down through society. I just will call it social injustice as the big headline, a big label, but they manifest themselves in many ways and it affects the children and their children and their children and generations that follow who are inheriting the same angst of living in the skin that they're in in a country that still is practicing systemic racism. Food is very political. It's an extremely political thing. Land ownership and land access is very political. There are reasons for that. You mentioned you were raised as a brethren, and I mentioned that, you know, I mentioned Amish, and I'll tell you why. Because as a farmer, I was looking for breeding stock, a particular breeding stock that was difficult to find. Through my internet search, a gentleman referred me to an Amish farmer who was providing him his breeding stock. This older guy was going out of business. He referred me to this Amish farmer. So I called because I was given a number. It was his father's number because they were sharing phones. And after about a week, we got in touch with each other. And I ended up making a trip from Virginia to Ohio to purchase breeding stock from this Amish farmer. Now, here I am. And he's he was 24, 25 at the time, meeting me for the first time. And, um, you know, he's got the horse and buggy, the barn, the house, the wife living across the road from her parents. He's 25 years old, school teacher, already gainfully employed has transportation without a car note. He rides eight miles one way to school to teach. When the weather's bad, he gets in his buggy and drives the buggy. They can grow their own food. They have their own house. They're living a life of stability that many inner city people don't even know exist. You see, there's one key word here, Scott, and it's exposure. And I question, are we really exposing these inner city youth to the whole agricultural pie? And the answer is no. We're only exposing them to a slice and we're telling them 
we're going to help you stay in your lane moving forward. We're going to help you stay right where you are. And yes, you'll be able to grow some food and do this, maybe set up a cafe. That's great. But you're not going to feed half the city. You're not going to feed 10 blocks. And you're not going to own the stores that the food's in. And you're not going to own the warehouses. And you're not going to really make a dent in the American agricultural picture, even though historically our ancestors were the ones who did a whole lot of the backbreaking work to get all of this started in the first damn place. You see, we're, we're still not having an honest discussion about agriculture. So we talk about the stuff around it because it's more attractive to talking about, you know, organic, sustainable, permaculture, regenerative, let's save the planet, let's do that, but let's keep those other black people right where they are. We'll offer them a little bit, we're still offering crumbs and we're still putting the hope in another generation. And you know, how long can you do that? I, I remember my grandfather who's now deceased, but I remember him saying, you know, I want your life to be better than mine. And my father who's 96 now still alive is like, son, I wanted, I did things so that your life could be better for you. And even at his age, he's not thrilled with what he's saying. You know, he's not thrilled at all. So, you know, to have a really frank and honest discussion about this, what's usually missing at the table is there's not a voice of the independent black farmers who don't necessarily want to be subsidized, who want parity and the ability to maintain that as a vocational farmer. But also in that picture means we have to have access to those markets which have been identified as black, which means that those customers should be buying from us black farmers. But there's reasons that that's not happening as well, you see. And, and oftentimes, you know, I found myself in the position of, well, they're going to, you know, do some kind of a subsidized farming project and, and promote an urban farmer to do deliveries and so forth and so on. And within an hour's drive, myself will be totally excluded from that unless I would want to come in and at a price point that is totally non-realistic to a vocational farmer. They don't understand that at all, you see. So there are issues. By being subsidized, that further ties you to the system that exists and doesn't allow for actual independence. Correct. Many of these programs that exist to create urban farming programs aren't really liberatory, but they just put a different face on urban agriculture without necessarily improving the communities that these urban farming programs are a part of. And so that... In order to really create a deep, systemic, fast, multi-generational impact, African-American farmers in the United States need to have access to land in large enough quantities to provide the primary inputs for their community, which then can be used to grow out all of those secondary and tertiary products. Your food being grown by a farmer goes to the grocery store. Maybe they have a contract then with a family who is running a grain mill and a bakery in that community so that it can be truly free from as much of the political and systemic forces at play, both on the local, state, and national level, if we're using the United States as a, exactly. an example. Exactly. I would say that's a pretty succinct way of putting it. And central to all of that is, you know, land access. That remains the central issue. So when you limit a person's visions, you know, I have a friend who coined a phrase and I'll use it now. 
Every time you enter into a city anywhere, you pass a sign that says you're now entering the city limits. So the city limits, it has definite limits. And agriculture is limited in cities, period. It doesn't matter. I can, whatever argument somebody wants to give me, that's fine. It's limited because of space. You're not going to, for example, uh, I was at an at a ag conference out in um, New Mexico, sitting next to people who raise buffaloes on their farm. Well, where are you going to raise a buffalo in the city? What you see in the zoo is not raising. That's totally different. That's just an example and a slightly extreme because not many people are going to do buffalo, but they might want to do, you know, dairy cattle or dairy goats or meat animals or rabbits or chickens or poultry or whatever. You're always going to be limited by whatever the restrictions are within that zoning classification of that city and, and having enough physical space to do it. So then we talk about, well, we can go vertical and we can do it on the rooftops. That's fine. But, you know, they're not playing the masters on a rooftop. Back to the analogy of, you know, putt-pup golf versus playing at the masters. There's different levels. And if we're ever going to make the type of changes that I think African-Americans need to be making in this country, we, we're going to have to become more food secure. You know, when you talk about food security, our, our communities are woefully food insecure. And they're woefully food insecure because they don't have enough farmland and our farmers around them to provide or it's provided by people who don't look like them who basically redline and don't put the good quality food stores in neighborhoods where they think it's too risky. There's lots of reasons for all of these injustices that are still being perpetuated. So, you know, agriculture is not, is not clean right now. And historically it hasn't been. So, I mean, to take a really deep dive at this and really have honest conversations about what it takes to make paradigm shifts, we cannot skip around the issue of land ownership and land accessibility, particularly as it relates to people of color, and particularly in my case, as it relates to African-Americans, of which when people look at me, that's how they classify me. It's automatic. It's part of American history because America was based on racism, and it still operates under those same principles as the founding fathers. And what you were saying about exposure and scale the personal experience that I went through that comes to mind as a poor analogy in our conversation was that I always thought I knew what the stars looked like and the night sky looked like, but I grew up in a city. And it was only when I was a teenager and I was 15 miles from shore, there was nothing more than the console lights on the boat that we were on. That's and right. I'm laying there looking up and I can see the whole of the sky. And that was a moment where I felt small and insignificant, but I could dream so much bigger than I That's ever right. had in any other moment in my life. Yes, because the constraints of space were no longer a part of your visual feel. You didn't see a wall or a building every 10 or 20 feet. You weren't surrounded by concrete and steel. You were surrounded by pure nature, and that, that does wonderful things for one's spirit. That's also part of what's missing from this equation. So, you know, taking a walk to a park is nice, but hiking on 250 acres is totally different. I was sitting next to a man at this conference in Albuquerque. I went to this Regenerate conference where I was an invited speaker for um, Corvera. Very fascinating. And for me, I had not had contact with, you know, the Southwestern farmers um, and ranchers because a lot of them are ranchers and they're doing cattle. But I was talking to people who had like 100,000 acres. That was their ranch, 100,000 acres. Now try to wrap your brain around what that looks like 
when, you know, we're telling people, well, you know, you can get this acre or a quarter of an acre, we're going to come in and we're going to bring in the topsoil and we're going to do vermiculture and we're going to put rabbits and we're going to put some chickens and we're going to grow tomatoes and squash and we're going to have a little piece of Eden and it's wonderful. And I'm not saying that it's not, but that's not the big picture of agriculture. And we're not raising people who are going to even have any idea, any idea at all what it's like to do a 6,000 square foot greenhouse of, of tomatoes or whatever, or become an owner of even an ornamental flower business or anything like that. Not, not to mention even the equine industry, which you know, is a whole totally different thing. If you don't have land and money or pick any livestock industry, and it really gets down to who owns it and who controls it, the people who own and control the land, which are always white people. It could be cattle, sheep, goats, pigs, chickens, ducks, turkeys, you name it. That's how it's done. So we're making some progress, but in my opinion, a lot of it is still coming from this paternalistic position of reaching down to help someone. And I think that oftentimes the people who are, are well-intentioned who are doing that can't even fathom, cannot even begin to fathom what Black independence would look like because they only know Black interdependence and they're only working within the confines of Black interdependence on the same white dominated system that we're perpetuating by promoting another generation of economically deprived people. The interdependence that you speak to, I think of if we're facing those kinds of issues within our cities, then how do we get people on land in large quantities and still be able then to get to and from market? The costs that are involved there, the equipment that you need, it's not like the Amish fellow who can put together his buggy and doesn't have a car note. The resources that American society requires are expensive. Well, and that is part of the problem. It may be that it's time to, to take a serious deep dive into really thinking about what the future would look like or could look like if, in fact, we modified our behavior patterns as a society and changed our level of dependence on things that we have no control of. And you see, again, for African-Americans, that's damn near everything in their life. You know, food, clothing, and shelter are essentials. But, uh, you know, with most African-Americans living at or below that poverty level in this country, that's an everyday reality for them. That struggle is still real. It's a 24-7, seven days a week. So, you know, you have some people who, who manage to escape financially, you know, from that, that paradigm of poverty. But it's not the majority. It's certainly nowhere near the majority in the African-American community. You see, we're still, we're still mm -hmm. like concentrated in these tiny spaces and high numbers without access to a lot of wholesome foods often at price points that are reachable and all of the other social problems that come into play as a result of systemic racism that has historically been played out generation after generation. So, you know, I'm here to raise a hand and open this up conversation and say, I'm going to raise my voice as long as I breathe and walk on two feet because I am a farmer. I'm an agriculturalist. I've been doing this with my wife and I for before some of these people even thought about it. And, and doing it seriously in a way to make a living. And it's been hard as hell because not only do we not have the financial support of a collective cohesive black community, because we're in a rural area and you see rural blacks are really an afterthought because when people think black, they think urban first, it's automatic. Black means urban. 
you know, black means urban, black usually means, you know, a, a lot of single parent households and lots of other things come into play. But if that's the model that people are looking at as the standard, it's a self-limiting thing. It really truly is because what about the rest of us that are out here doing it and have been for generations? I, I know some black farmers in Texas that have been on their land for three or four generations, have four or 500 acres and some with even more, some with thousands of acres, but they don't get to be the face of the black farmer. The nation doesn't get to see them because they're looking for this millennial urban version that that they're comfortable speaking to because they're coming from a perspective that is under control. But people who choose to be independent, not so much. Is that independence and your vision part of what you'll be speaking to during the Future Harvest Conference with your New Age agrarianism? Yes. You see, because New Age agrarianism to me is, is really a paradigm change in how we look at things. You know, moving forward, if we're going to save this planet collectively as humans on the planet Earth, then we all have to get to the point where we become earthlings. We're not there yet. We, we're not there yet. That means national borders and all of these other types of things that are creating havoc around the world and really looking at politics differently. And it really also means having responsible leaders in political positions. If you're going to lead, then we need to hold them to the highest level of planetary citizenship, which means getting rid of any talks of things like wars, nuclear weapons, children starving, wherever they live. That should not be happening. There's enough wealth here. It's, it's not about that. It's about how it's distributed. It's about who controls the money. It's about who controls and runs things like, like the World Bank and who controls the, the economy of nations by devaluating their currency in order to keep them in a position of subserviency. Same thing happens here. It's the same model that's happening everywhere. It's just a matter of how your worldview, how you see this. So I, I don't think that, well, I'm, I'm certain it can't continue on for, you know, another century or two like things are going here uh, without a paradigm change. And, and, and I maintain that that change is really back to a more agrarian-based lifestyle where people actually stop living in, con being concentrated in areas where they can't have any ability to feed their families, grow food, make their own energy, and break the bonds of this whole system. And all people, oh, now you're talking anarchy. No, stop, people. That's not it. I'm talking freedom. It's not the same thing at all. Freedom has nothing to do with anarchy. That's not it. That's not it at all. People were free before. People can be free again. But the freedom that people, they have to free themselves from dependency on a system that is systemically wicked and continues to be that continues to be a white dominant culture that's controlling everything everywhere. And then people wonder and shake their head, well, what can we do to make it better? But they're still part of that same culture and really don't want to give up their position because they'd be uncomfortable. You know, I remember listening to um, an educator by the name of Jane Elliott. I don't know if you know Jane Elliott, if you, but if not, just Google Jane Elliott, please, and listen to some of her videos. She would identify as a white female who's a teacher and she teaches a lot. Um, listen to some of Jane Elliott's works. But what she did is she had a group of white people that she asked them on camera, how many of you would like to live under the same conditions that black people in America live under? Please raise your hand. Nobody's hand went up. So it's obvious then that the majority of the people recognize, yeah, this is, I mean, just Google it, you'll see the videos and nobody's raising their hands because you know, even though they consider themselves to be good or liberal or what have you, they're saying, oh, yeah, but I don't want to live under the same circumstances and conditions that Blacks in America are subjected to. I, I don't find that attractive. 
You see, so that's the depths of this problem. So we're, we're beginning to have these conversations about it, but Lord, you know, as an agriculturalist, and when, when I know that we're losing 30,000 acres and when I know that we don't have youth that are trained to inherit if they were able to, because very few of us are gonna inherit land, it's just not what happens. But then would they be able to develop it into a viable agricultural enterprise that could stand the test of time, last more than five years and have recurrent clients? Because you know the business model is still the business model when it's based on capitalism. Or you go with an agrarian model and you start building communities that basically serve as their own self-sufficient living area where you grow the food and you have your schools and you know you basically take care of each other. Wow, you see, that's a revolutionary concept right there, isn't it? You know, people are gonna be like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah because everybody needs a job. Well, you need a job stance for jump out of bed on the journey of the broke to stay just over broke because that's basically what jobs are going to keep you. Jump out of bed, you're in a hurry to get there. You know, they're gonna give you just enough to keep you coming back and coming back and coming back. And we're all on that same treadmill like hamsters, you know, but allegedly we can read, but it's questionable. I'm not sure that, you know, and I'm not trying to slam people, but it's like, there's a lot of information that's available, but to think outside the box, the biggest change is comes from within where you challenge yourself to unpackage all of the, what you've learned and kind of start with a clean slate and look at this thing through wide open eyes and say, what can I do as an earthling, as an earthling to make this a better place for everyone so that seven generations from now, everybody's breathing clean air. Everybody has fresh water. Everybody has an abundance of food. Everybody has a standard of living that is comfortable so that nobody has to do without anything because that's, with, that's within our ability, you know, as a species, if we desire to do that. But we would rather spend money on frivolous stuff, we collectively, modern man, on frivolous things that are totally unnecessary while people suffer around the world. We are more interconnected than people think. And particularly when you talk about food and global food, that's a totally different picture. But, you know, if you're eating wheat and you're eating rice, you need to understand it's a fragile line there. Things can go south fast. And there's reasons for that. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, corporate control of seeds. But that's a conversation for another day. My intention is, you know, I'm not trying to put people off, but I am trying to shake people up. And I think that they need to be shaken because I sit at a lot of conference tables and I listen to people and, and the efforts that they make and they talk about outreach and diversity and how they, we want to embrace. But you see, they're always coming at it from this paternal ownership position where it's, first of all, we're going to invite you to our table. Why can't we envision it the other way around? Maybe the indigenous people and the African-Americans, maybe we need to be inviting you to our table. But you see, that's never really a part of the equation because it's not the model that's comfortable and nobody knows how to work within a model that's any different. So they're gonna continue doing the same things that their parents and grandparents did with a slight twist, you know, every 20 or 30 years. Well, I think it takes more than that because my parents are in their nineties and they've experienced the same things and my father thinks it's getting worse. And then in the few minutes we have remaining, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Yeah, my final thought is to if you think you know American history, you probably need to revisit that thought. Because if you're telling your children that Christopher Columbus discovered America, you're not really telling them the truth. That becomes a problem. There were already people here. If I go into a Walmart parking lot and discover your car this evening, does it make it mine? 
can I tell a child, well, you know, I just discovered this car, so hey, I'm just going to claim it. But this is the same type of a lie we're telling our children still, you know, with the Christopher Columbus story and, and everything else. So it's really difficult for white people to not see the world through a white dominant culture, but it's not their fault. It's not a question of fault. It's what they were born into. It's what they're used to. It's really all they know. So I'm going to challenge them to think about a world in which this script was totally flipped. What if black people control the banks and the resources and the military and the government and own 98% of the land in America? How would that make you feel? And what would you be doing if every time you reached in your pocket, you were paying a black person for everything that you needed? So that's my challenge. Try that for a while. See how that fits. And that was Renard Turner. I'll include a link to his farm, Vanguard Ranch Natural Gourmet, and other resources mentioned in the show notes. As I shared in the opening, Renard is also the keynote speaker of the upcoming Together We Can conference presented by Future Harvest. I'll be attending this virtual event on Thursday and Friday, January 13th and 14th, 2022. As this is completely online, it's a great way to start the new year, and I look forward to you joining me, Renard, and all the amazing speakers and presenters. Find out more and register to attend today at futureharvest.org. Stepping away from this interview, I want to reiterate what I said in the beginning, and that Renard and I touched on throughout our conversation. Systemic forces like those we discussed, and how they impact all levels of society, can be a lot to take in. Often, we are also, in the deepest meaning of the word, ignorant to these realities for a variety of reasons. Once we give ourselves that grace and become aware of these issues, we can then take meaningful action to the best of our abilities. If after listening to this interview, you would like to learn more, I recommend reading some of the books that changed my perspective. Those include The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein, and White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America by Nancy Eisenberg. I've also included links in the show notes to my interviews with Jeff Speck, Brad Ward, and the series on permaculture, land, and land access. Each of those, in their own way, expand on some of what was touched on in our time with Renard. From there, or if you already find yourself wanting to take action, look for your local mutual aid or sustainable agriculture organizations. Through them, you'll meet a lot of folks looking to liberate rather than simply lift up. So reach out to them for more information and to get involved. I'd also like to hear your thoughts after listening to Renard and his perspective and our conversation today. Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch in the usual ways. Call or text 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, Care of Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. Until the next time, spend each day making the world a more just, beautiful, and egalitarian world while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>